Chris and Chris Talk Movies. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Chris Ferry, and of course, this is my co-host. My name is Chris Huddleston. And today, we are both very excited to be talking to you about the anime classic? Perfect I think so. Blue. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know. I, I Anyway, Perfect Blue. Do you have a synopsis for us, Mr. Huddleston? I do, and I am not going to try to. The The director is uh, Satoshi Khan. I can pronounce that, but I'm not going to get into all the, the actors because I don't want to butcher people's names. But at any rate, it's a 1997, as we said, uh, anime, a uh, psychological thriller, I would say. And the synopsis is a pop singer gives, gives up her career to become an actress but she slowly goes insane when she starts being stalked by an obsessed fan and what seems to be a ghost of her past. All right. So you, this was first, I've had watched this once before many years ago, but this was a first time for you. Yes. So what did you uh, think? I, uh, I loved it. Uh, we should say that we spoil these films. So this is a, a psychological thriller with the kind of a, you know, this genre frequently excuse me frequently has some twists and turns and red herrings and surprises at the end we do spoil these movies um so if you haven't seen it i recommend you watch it before we ruin it for you i really enjoyed the fact that i didn't know much about it at all when i watched it you have been warned um so yeah i, I really enjoyed it i think the animation style and all of the technical choices that went into the sort of storyboarding were, were great. I thought it was moody and scary and uh, suspenseful. Um, I'm sure we'll get into this with Aronofsky and some of Aronofsky's work and that whole relationship. I, I do want to make sure we talk about the film on its own merits. Um, but if, you know, if you've seen Aronofsky's work and we did Black Swan a year ago or not a while mm -hmm. back, we did Black Something Swan. Like that, yeah. There are definitely some e echoes in Aronofsky's work. I thought of Black Swan while I was watching this and, uh, Requiem for a Dream is another one where there's some sort of shot for shot stuff lifted. This preceded both of those films. Um, and it is the story of, um, uh, young pop star she's like in a, a three girl singing group that will probably seem familiar to uh watch your viewers today but she decides she wants to transition to acting 
And there is, you know, there's a stalker figure that nobody else seems to take seriously. Somebody has a website that they've started about her that's kind of weird and creepy and written in the first person. Um, and there's a letter bomb, you know, and, and there's a clear suspect from the beginning is a very creepy figure that um that becomes more and more menacing and one of the things i one of the things that i i just want to jump right in with both feet and talk about is nobody really seemed to take this guy seriously like he's very creepy you know and and there's at one point there's a letter bomb that it just sort of does cosmetic damage she doesn't open it her manager opens it or somebody opens it you know, and it kind of bloodies his face and hand. And then it says, this is just a warning. The next one will be real. And they sort of like, oh, it'll just be a, it's just a prank. We don't need to call the police. And I thought, I mean, maybe it's different in Japan or maybe 1997. I'm like, I don't think so. I think, you know, they take law enforcement pretty, that's pretty serious. Um, yeah. And yet, you know, it's kind of brushed off as things escalate. It's complicated by the fact that she seems to have the pressures of this transition. And, you know, her agent is not a monster, but he's more interested in, you know, her success and what the financial rewards of that are going to be for him in particular, but, you know, the both of them, than he is in her mental health or... Right. I mean, she does a she gets on the show and it's a it's like, a, you know, SVU type show. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she's somebody's little sister with a couple of lines. And then eventually they kind of, you know, pester the writer into giving her something juicier. And there's a scene in which that character is raped. That's a pretty intense scene. Mm-hmm. It's just it's television but the way in which it's depicted in the movie is very intense um and and it's upsetting to her after the fact but you know nobody's really taking care of her nobody's really checking in with her as she starts to have sort of a disassociative it's never really explained but she starts to see her reflection in the mirror as her former self in the girl group outfit, right? The girl group goes from a trio after she leaves to a duo and suddenly they're getting the sort of success. They're doing really well, yeah. There. So there's a number of pressures on her professionally that the film doesn't dive deep into. What we see is her starting to have, again, I don't know what, you're the psychology major. I don't know what kind of, how you would diagnose that, but she starts to, this is what made me think of Black Swan, she starts to sort of see herself as the character, see herself as, you know, that there's multiple versions of her and she's not, she has these episodes where she sort of relives experiences. She'll have breakfast and do a shot of the movie or the show that she's working on. And then have an experience of that happening to her in some version in real life. And then waking up in her bed and having the same lunch and shooting the same scene. And it, I mean, it makes for really interesting movie watching because I was scratching my head trying to like piece it together, but it's very much shot from the inside of that shot. It's animated, but it's very much uh, shown from the inside of that character's head. So we don't, I mean, I kind of like that we never get it 
diagnosed and explained and 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 dissected so that it makes logical sense you know it's a it's an mm -hmm. emotional um device that puts us in the shoes of the of the protagonist anyway i'm kind of blabbing on you know you've seen it more than once now re-seeing it what were some of your impressions yeah so i i saw this the first time it was probably 2004 2003 something like that so it's been a long time you know almost 20 years since i had watched it and it's it's been a it it kind of stuck with me in that, you know, I didn't remember everything about it, but I had always wanted to revisit this. And, and it was a movie that I thought you would like. Um, and we will, I think we both would say we're in no way anime experts. You know, we kind of know, or at least I would say, I kind of know the big ones, Akira we've done on the show and Ghost in the Shell. And this is another one that uh, is, is kind of in that, um area where it's crossed over a little bit to kind of mainstream you know people who aren't into anime somewhat know this movie um but the interesting thing about it is it's this to me is a great movie for people who aren't really into animation or they think they don't like anime um to watch because it's in a lot of ways, it's it's just a movie. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but, you know, it's not like for people that think that anime is only science fiction or it's, you know, uh, monsters battling each other and things like that. This is not what this movie is. This is very much kind of a Hitchcockian, you know. And, and it's interesting to me that uh, this would seem like a perfect film for Hollywood to do a live action remake of hundred percent. hundred percent. I'm sort of flabbergasted that it hasn't been done. I'm sure there's probably been maybe some attempts to do this, or I don't know. I mean, I haven't looked into it too much, but I don't know about rights issues and things like that, but yeah, I mean, this would, and obviously, you know, we'll get it as you brought up, you know, we'll get into some with uh, some more probably with Aronofsky, but uh, th this is a movie that I'm sure filmmakers know about. Um, you know, but yeah, it's interesting how um, it all plays out. And we haven't even talked about her, her managers. So she has a male, basically like this kind of duo management team. Uh, I forget what the man's name is, but then the woman is named Rumi. She becomes very important at the end. Um, but yeah, it's interesting how, you know, even watching this for a second time, I'm not completely sure what was real and what wasn't in this right. um one of the thing the only thing about this being a uh a late 90s movie that makes it seem a little bit dated is she so uh i think maybe it's Rumi buys it for, for mima uh, uh a computer and is like i'm gonna set you up on the world wide web and she's like what's that i don't i, I don't know what this is know what a web page is right and so there is a page dedicated to it's it's a it's a page about her and um and purportedly by her. Right. Right. So it's all these, you know, it's like today I went shopping and when right. I get off the, the train, I I step out with my left foot first. And you know, and um she so she has multiple things that are causing her to I guess have a psychic break. You know, she has the pressure of transitioning her career from being this pop star that she was 
seemingly good at to moving into acting, which is, uh, you know, a, a big transition for her. And so she has the pressure of that. She has this message board that is, you know, or this website that's reporting all this stuff about her that isn't true in a lot of cases. And that's messing with her. Um, and she also has, um, she's trying to shake this kind of pop star image also in that like she has a photographer do nude photos of her uh, or, you know, she agrees to do these photographs. And also the- I think it's strongly implied. We don't really- He kind of coerced her. Well, there's two other characters saying, oh, she's doing a photo shoot with this guy and oh, he's famous for, you know- convincing or pressuring his subjects into doing salacious nude stuff and so sort of see the photo shoot and then we see her kind of dealing with it as though it was trauma after the fact and of course it splashed all of the tabloids so it goes from it's like well you could argue that doing um being the victim in a rape scene on something like SVU actually what they reference in the movie is um the movie that uh uh with Jodie Foster with Jodie Foster did yeah. right which is i mean that movie is hard to watch that's a mm-hmm. harrowing harrowing rape scene and so th- right. this film actually references that. It's, oh, look what it did for Jody. What's her name's career, right? Well, you could also kind of argue that that messed up Jody Foster too. Just that yeah. experience of and the aftermath, because there were other characters saying, "Oh, you don't don't do this." You know, everybody's going to see you that way, and there's going to be all this other fallout. She's very young. She's very naive. She's very eager to please. She goes, she does a good job in the scene and we don't get that fallout parsed in the film. We sort of see it splashed all over the place and we hear other characters, you know, sort of talking about it as she passes them in the subway or whatever. She's not rich. She doesn't have a bodyguard. She doesn't have a security detail. She doesn't live in, she just lives in an apartment. It feels very familiar to New York City living. It would just be, a little studio apartment with a kitchenette and, you know, not big. Hmm. So that aspect of it felt very familiar to me is that even though she's now on a hit TV show and she's got big lines, then, then she does this photo shoot. She's a rising star. She does this photo shoot with a photographer who convinces her to do some really, I mean, not pornographic, not sex stuff, but graphic nude stuff. And then that's all over the newspapers and selling like hotcakes everywhere. And we, again, we don't get into how she feels about that. There's one scene where she sort of screams in the bathtub and there's a scene in which she sort of tears up her room and sort of says, of course I didn't want to do it, you know, but we don't get it unpacked. Right. We just see that she's upset. And more than that, we see that her world is kind of coming apart. She's not sure who she is anymore. Um, and there is nobody else is, is clocking this, I guess, because she's still able to show up on set and do a good job. And there's a couple of times where she's having one of these sort of disassociative states while the camera is rolling. And it works. So people mm-hmm. just think, oh, she's they all applaud. And they're like, that was amazing. Great take, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so there's nobody really. 
I don't, her parents apparently don't live in the city. She talks on the phone to her mom, but there's just, she doesn't really have anybody. She had the girl group and they're doing better without her. And she's got her manager who's really only concerned about the bottom line. And then there's this sort of other manager who checks in on her. But as we learn by the end of the film may actually have been contributing to this. Mm -hmm. And, and so this is something that really struck me is she imagines this version of herself who says, you know, I, I told you it's it's her, but it's dressed in the pop group like baby doll dress. And she's sort of magical. I mean, she sort of hops out the window and flies and and bounces from along the tops of the streetlights. Right. So it's clearly. It starts as her reflection in the mirror, but this this image of herself appears to her and kind of castigates her for the choices. Yeah, kind of taunts her throughout the film, yeah. And eventually becomes overtly menacing and threatening. Um, we we learn at the end that so okay, we've been spoiling it, but here's the here's the twist. We learn at the end that actually the mastermind behind all this is is the female half of the agency who herself was a pop star and that sort of a washed up pop star and is absolutely certifiably like psychotic like bo absolutely bonkers and sees herself as 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 that version like has a wig and it's really like you know it's like uh in psycho where he thinks he's his mother like she mm -hmm. She thinks she's the pop star version of this girl, and she's been manipulating this menacing, a guy who's genuinely also disturbed, but she's been sort of manipulating him to kill all these other people um, in the orbit, uh, in this film orbit of, of the new uh, career. So what what's what's interesting to me is at the end, the the image of herself in that baby doll dress sort of merges with the other woman's image of herself as that character. And you're kind of, I found that it works in the movie, but I, when I stopped to think about it, I'm like, so, I mean, she was imagining, is she just projecting this sort of, this sort of identity break from herself does that just kind of line like I couldn't I couldn't make sense of it. And I don't think you need to for the film to work. But it did I miss something critical? I mean, well, there were a couple of things that that I definitely had questions about. So um, I so I watched a video uh, earlier today, kind of an analysis of this. And they were saying so you have so Rumi, the the agent, she uh, is there at the end with uh, Mima and, you know, it's revealed that she's doing all of this. And like you were saying, you see her, she's in the, she's wearing like the pop star outfit, but she's older. So she does not look, you know, she doesn't have the pop star shape or anything anymore. Um, and it's so hair, she wears a wig and at one point the wig gets pulled off and that really, that's the thing that sort of saves Mima at a certain point because yeah, because that way, causes her to have kind of like a... ah, just so that she's trying to kill her at this point, and she yeah. accidentally knocks her wig off, and that's you know she has to stop and get her wig back on. And oh, it's, they, great. it's really scary. They do a really neat thing with this where she so they're fighting in the apartment, and then Mima gets outside and 
goes onto the street and she's chasing after her and everything. And they do a really neat thing where they're running down the street. And when Rumi is, there's, um, when she goes by and you can see what she actually looks like. And then the reflection of her in the glass as she's running by is the, you know, the, is the pop star look. And that was really cool. But in this analysis that I read, they were saying that um, at that point that Mima is confused and she actually sees Rumi as the, as the pop star, which I didn't really take it that way because she knows who she is. I kind of took it more as that was Rumi's representation of herself. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, so I don't think they clear. were both confused about who she was. You know, I think Rumi was, and then I think Mima is seeing her as she actually appears. Yeah. And I, the only way I could make sense of it is sort of that she's been so used to seeing her reflection as this sort of former self pop star me, you know, and, and, and the other thing is that she's a character that, I said eager to please earlier, but you sense that there she rep represses a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this strong desire to be what other people want her to be, and and so I was like, okay, now so that she's sort of seeing this sort of version of herself that resents making this change, and by the end, you've got this antagonist who sees herself that way, and that's sort of overlapping. So it's not literally that. Here comes uh, Rumi, and and Mima is seeing Rumi that way. But but the it's easy for her to overlay the image of her antagonistic pop star could have been self mm -hmm. on to uh, Rumi, who is now also has a very similar delusion, and it's right. very effective for us as the audience to see those things overlap. But again, this is not a movie that explains things. It shows you a lot of stuff. And, and again, it doesn't need to be literal. It doesn't need to make literal sense for the film to be effective. I find it very effective. Yeah. Um, but you're right. At, when she's running for her life, she doesn't, it sort of doesn't matter whether she's fighting, you know, fleeing from her life for her life from, you know, a manifest hostile version of herself or from Rumi because they are one and the same at that point. Right. 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 I yeah. love that scene where it's, it's great Rumi running and, you know, she's heavy set and she's, she's in a full disassociative state. So she looks scary and mm -hmm. crazy and she's just running at full speed and she's like, slathering and her eyes are wild and and yet the image of herself is this sort of little like you know almost pixie like just little skipping and flying mm -hmm. along with a big gorgeous smile on its face and so that's her sense of herself and then in the reflection you see <laughs> and mm -hmm. it's so effective i'm like man i've never seen anything like that before that is it's so great inventive and i feel like there's actually I, I don't have a thesis ready on this yet, but I feel like we can talk about the Aronofsky stuff for sure. I feel like this film was pretty influential. I think there was a lot of things that either cribbed shots from this or borrowed uh, heavily 
from it because a lot of this, I mean, it felt really original, but a lot of it felt very familiar to me. And I think it felt familiar because of a lot of stuff I've seen since. You have, you've had so many films uh, and I don't, I don't necessarily want to start naming names and, and ruin other movies, but you've had so many films uh, in the, you know, in the late nineties and into kind of the mid two thousands that, I mean, you could almost watch the trailers and say, oh, it, at the end, it's going to turn out that, you know, none of this really happened. It was all in their head or the main character is actually the killer, you know? So Yeah. I, you know, that, that trope came from somewhere. And, and like you said, I'm sure filmmakers saw this. I don't in... know. I don't know. In 1997, I don't know that you could say that trope. I mean, we mentioned Psycho earlier. So I don't know that you could credit this film with kind of coining that trope per se. But yeah. just a lot of the shot. I'm surprised that we haven't seen that shot stolen somewhere else where you know you we see the person as they see themselves but in the reflection it's <laughs> real appearance yeah um but you know aronofsky uh took the the bathroom her screaming in the tub underwater in the tub took that like shot for shot like it was and a he admits board. it you know he openly admits he called it. it homage right yeah. what's interesting to me and then the stuff i read about this is the director of this film seems a little bit like Mima. Like he seems on the surface eager to please and mm -hmm. happy for the attention. Oh, I'm glad you liked the movie. But but there's other interviews that he's done where he's angry and bitter that this film didn't, because this film was not a commercial success. And not I at the time, no. It's been regarded as a groundbreaking movie in retrospect, but that hasn't translated to wealth or success for him now. Um Whereas Darren Aronofsky, who has had a meteoric rise since mm -hmm. Pi, right? And Requiem for a Dream was right after Pi. So he did mm -hmm. Requiem for a Dream, saw this movie. I mean, he did Pi, saw this movie, and then did Requiem for a Dream and cribbed some stuff shot for shot and called it homage. And I, I'm not sure that the director of this film would agree that that's cool. I mean, then articles haven't really talked about black swan but come on i mean you watch it's so similar in many ways yeah and and it's been so long since i've seen requiem for a dream because i i saw it once it and it's one of those yeah. requiem for a dream is one of those Man. one of the best movies that i've ever seen that i have not been able to watch a second time just because any and i i have i bought the dvd like not long after it came out and there's just never been a time where I thought, you know what? I want to watch Requiem for a dream tonight. You know, I mean, uh, that's what actually we should do for the show at some point to just force we, ourselves to watch. We it again, probably but. should. I think knowing, I think knowing where it goes, I'd be able to watch it, but it was, it makes me think a little bit, I don't want to get too off track, but it makes me think a little yeah. bit of us talking about mad God is mm -hmm. that, you know, you can make a masterpiece that, is undoubtedly a masterpiece but if it's hard to watch how often is it going to get watched you know what yeah. i mean that doesn't mean sure. don't make it i'm not saying everything has to be some popcorn crowd pleaser but 
there's only so many times <laughs> you, know, you can oh, go yeah. that deep and dark where you're just like oh geez you know yeah. i was feeling pretty good <laughs> <laughs> i mean i guess it's a movie that could maybe make you feel better about your own life it's just like, well at least i don't have these problems you know but yeah requiem for a dream did not really occur to me um because honestly i don't i don't really remember the shot or shots you know that they're talking about but definitely as you said black swan i mean at the end so at the at the end is there is they're having this battle um uh Rumi gets cut on some glass and then she stumbles out into the road and there's a truck coming and you see the headlights and she stands there and holds her arms up like this in front of the lights as and if it's like they are the lights, lights or something crowd right on the stage and that's yes he 100% took that yes. shot for for yes. uh black swan i feel like that shot has been cribbed that's a more generic one like the right. i'm not i'm not minimizing it but i mean that shot of standing behind the star in the bow with the lights being blinding um maybe this director coined that shot but i, I don't i it's a more iconic image yeah and i'm not saying aronofsky didn't i mean there it is but mm -hmm. Um, but the bathtub shot when um, Jennifer Conley does, it's like a storyboard. It's there's yeah. a shot of her in the tub and then a shot of her face under the water and a shot of her screaming. And I think Requiem a Dream didn't leap to mind for me either. Like, I didn't remember that shot until I read about it and then started mm -hmm. looking into it um, because of the heroin addiction. Because what I remember about Requiem for a Dream was the devastating effect of that addiction and how it just destroyed her life. You mm -hmm. know, it, it was like following that character down to rock bottom, you know? And, yeah. and so, and this film is not that. This film is about the pressures of success. And I feel like there might be... I feel like it's very accessible. I watched it with subtitles. I feel like it's very accessible uh, to my Western brain. I feel like there is some culturally specific Japanese stuff in there that I probably that was a little lost on me just in terms of like when I said, oh, um, you know, I'm surprised I didn't make more of that. Well, I don't know. Maybe that wasn't so unusual in 1997 in Japan. Maybe that was just casual misogyny. Maybe that was just the culture. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. like uh, a, a female artist feeling the need, especially a young and not established female artist needing to feel, uh, feeling like she needs to sort of subvert whatever she wants. That's hardly inaccessible to a Western, obviously that, sure. that that's pretty universal, yeah. but maybe, maybe there's some different sort of flavored cultural twists on it from Japan that I, or that maybe something in translation was a little didn't quite make it across that I would have gotten if I understood. Anyway. One thing that definitely seemed a bit like a cultural difference to me, I, I'm just guessing, but I thought it was interesting. So we have these uh, in the very it, it opens with her doing her final performance with um, her group. And the thing that was interesting about that to me is here in the United States, a, a female pop group like this or female pop stars, most of their uh, 
their fans would be teenage girls, right? right. Whereas this, the audience is all male. Like, you know, there may, yeah. yeah, there may be one or two, you know, females in the audience, but it's, you know, 99% male. And they're kind of these, not necessarily at the show, but there's this throughout the film, there's these three guys that are like reading newspaper stories about her. And it's just this kind of leering, you know, it, you, you get the feeling that it's as, as much about just the, even though they're not like the, the act is very wholesome, but, but you, you very much get the feeling that it's, you know, that they're sexualized by these, these guys. Well, the act is very wholesome. Right. But the outfit is not. The outfit is very Sailor Moon. It's very yeah. frilly, pink, schoolgirl, lacy, like very short skirt, high socks. I mean, the, the outfit is sexualized baby doll. And right. that also doesn't feel unfamiliar to us. You know, I mean, right around that time was probably Britney Spears. Oops. Yeah. I, I mean, so that's been part of pop culture forever. What was interesting to me is the you know the audience so there's a comic-con vibe to it and i love comic-con you know mm -hmm. but there's a it's just all the young men and they're sort of this is how they're this is the way in which they relate primarily to female sexuality you know they don't necessarily have a girlfriend of their own or whatever this is what they do in their free time and it is striking the audience's 99% you know single young 20 something you know, late teens early 20 something even maybe early 30 something men very excited to you know see these these girls really singing mm -hmm. these kind of chaste pop love songs and you know in that environment finding one guy who we they the the camera lingers, the screen lingers on him. And he is, there's no gray area. I mean, this guy is really obsessed and there's something wrong with him mentally. Yeah. And from the very beginning, you recognize him as a dangerous, his, his obsession with her is dangerous and scary from the very beginning. Um, and you think, well, you know, within this environment, yeah, you're going to get a couple of those guys. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of the other guys per se, but it's fertile ground for someone to take it too far and and, you know, and to cross lines. And uh, and so that all felt. Yeah, that felt a little Japanese to me, the fact that it's all men, but. Mm -hmm. Here in America, I feel like it is mostly young women who want to be that. Right. And in, in this film, it's a lot of young men who want to have that. Mm. In, in most of the cases, like, may fantasize about having sex with him, but want them as a girlfriend. Want want right. this as the woman in their life that they worship. And then one who wants to kill, kill her. Well, he's upset because she leaves the pop group to pursue a film career. And the fact that the film career takes her into this salacious territory where she isn't the chaste image, the sexualized chaste image of female dumb, but rather, you know, she's not the saint, she's the whore. Mm -hmm. um, 
that also very convincingly in the film drives this guy's mania to violence. He starts by killing the men who were responsible. He starts by killing the writer and then he kills uh, one of the production people, right? I mean, he it sort of spirals ever closer to her until finally he realizes, oh, there's two of her and there's the pop star one I want to I want to bring back. And we we learn at the end that it is Rumi who has been manipulating him saying, I'm the pop star version. You know, you have to get this other one out of the way. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds crazy, but it's really good. Oh, yeah. Now, one thing that I maybe uh, was a little bit confused on watching the movie is I thought throughout the film that the stalker was the one that was was writing the website. But that was actually I mean, did you think that or did you think he was just reading it? I thought I I thought he was writing it, but I think it was Rumi that was. Yeah, Rumi was the one writing it in emailing him so he was yeah. reading the website and he would email her because her. he would read he it thought, when he would read it, it would be her voice but i but i i don't know if if the movie is i mean he's crazy there's no yeah. doubt that this character is crazy and but i don't know if the if the movie was was um you know if you were supposed to think that he was the creator of the website or not or if that was just I, I, thought, I thought so at first. I thought it was yeah. sort of a red herring. We see him in front of it. And until the very end, you think, well, who else is there? Right. right. And he's writing it. He's obsessed. He's both voices in his head. And then it, at the end, you turn up, oh, it's Rumi. And Rumi has been manipulating this guy. This guy is crazy and murderous and obsessed. But it is Rumi that has been posing as the pop idol version mm-hmm. i get the names what's what's uh, mima, mima. of yeah. mima that has been manipulating him and tweaking him tweaking him into action and the the water is muddied by the fact that mima is having these nightmares and delusions in which she's committing the murders but of course she's right. reading the headlines and she's in the show that very much mirrors the thing that is unfolding in her life and i think in retrospect She's having trouble, as we, the audience, are separating what's real and what's not. Well, and there's one there's one part where she. Um, but I don't think she killed anybody. Do you? Is, did, did... No, no, I don't think she killed anybody. Uh, there's one part where um, there is. So the the photographer that took the racy pictures of her is murdered. He orders a pizza and the pizza pizza person shows up and and stabs him and um you the way they've done it the 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 pizza person is wearing a hat you don't see their face or anything so then a little bit later it's mima you can you're looking at it and you're like oh it's mima you know because you could wearing a baggy t-shirt but sort of she has breasts and and the face is sort of shapely you're like that's it's clearly it's a red herring but it's clearly supposed to be mima and then she has a I guess a nightmare where she wakes up, she finds the bloody hat and outfit in her, or maybe she literally finds it there. See what the way I took that is that Rumi probably put that in her closet. But how could Rumi, how could Rumi, like she had a vision or a nightmare of committing the act. How does that tie? So, 
in yeah. that all cap and shirt. So how could you know what I mean? Like when you think too hard about this, it either comes together and you have to think too hard about it or it doesn't quite come together. But it works when you're watching the movie. Mm hmm. You don't see, get hung up on it. Like, wait, shouldn't their hair be wet? And this thing, you, you don't, you don't. See, I I kind of took it as, and you know, I may be adding too much to it or reading too much into it, but I kind of took it as um, that Rumi was bas basically trying to drive her insane um, because the, uh, you know, she was manipulating the, the stalker, but she also she knew everything about her because she was around her all the time. And so the stuff about, Oh, I went shopping today, you know, all that. She would know all those things because she right. was around it. She was with her all the time. So I think she was, you know, maybe I'm giving it too much, you know, the film too much credit, but I think she was trying to manipulate both of them, the stalker and Mima, because if you take the element out of it, of, you know, she she would have had the pressure of changing careers and also trying to be more adult in her career. Um, but then when you add the, you know, and that would have been stressful to her. But then when you add the aspect of she's reading this website all the time that where it's like, how does this person know all these things about me? Right. You know, and um, so I really thought she was trying to I mean, I think she was just trying to get her out of the way in any way that she could and was probably, you know, it starts looking definitely like Mima is taking, is causing the, you know, is doing the murders, committing the murders. And you even start to get to where it's getting a little bit suspicious for her. And I think, you know, Rumi was just trying to get her out of the way. Basically. Right. That's kind of well, how I took it. Out. The other thing is the other thing that occurs to me is that at that at that point the police are starting to investigate to see if there's any way these things are tied together, and Rumi could have committed the murders in the pizza delivery outfit, right? And then and then put the evidence, the bloody shirt, the bloody hat, could have put that in Mima's apartment. Yeah, as a way <laughs> see, of that's... framing as a way of framing her. <laughs> yeah. So see, I wasn't even sure, you know, I wasn't even is just, I think that one of the challenges of doing a live action version of this is it almost seems as though. Uh, Rumi was able to get literally inside of Mima's head, right? Mm -hmm. Because there is that antagonistic vision of herself and. I don't know how you pull that off. It works in animation. I don't know how you pull that off in, in live action, but. Right. And you always wonder if a person who is, is this, uh, and you know, I guess it happens, you know, serial killers are definitely people who are not sane and they're able to, uh, you know, like Ted Bundy is an example of, he was able to have this seemingly normal life to a lot of people. Um, but you kind of wonder a person who is this unhinged as what Rumi is, would she be able to manipulate another person this way? But, you know, I think when you have somebody who is, you know, they're, they're guardians to her in a way, her and the man who are the agents. And, you know, if someone is an adult with much more experience than a young person has, and knows that they are just barely hanging on, 
you know, could maybe know ways to kind of push them over the edge. You right. know? That's, that's I, leverage. Yeah. yeah. I was not. And the other thing, I was not sure even that by the end of the movie, I was not sure that the stalker committed these these uh, these murders that maybe Rumi did all of them. And the, and the other thing that I was unsure of. So there's a part where finally at the towards the end. So, you know, he keeps appearing on set. And Great. how did he get on set? But then she kind of rubs her eyes and he's not there. And you're like, well, did he squeak away or was he never there? So there's finally towards the end, there is a scene where she is, you know, at the set and there's nobody else around. And the, the stalker shows up and and tries to rape her. And then. um uh she stabs him and kills him and runs away and then Rumi finds her and her 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 clothes are all torn and everything and so she Mima takes her where to the guy where the you know she left the body and he's not there he's gone and then a little bit later we see him and also is it is it her manager yeah she's the we see the two bodies so did presumably that was the guy attacked her Mimi Mima stabbed him and then Rumi removed the body well Mima hit him with a hammer right hit yeah. him in the head with a hammer but when we find the bodies the agent's eyes have been stabbed right the the victims yeah. all have their eyes stabbed out right and they're all men you know so there's something going on there with image and right but that's not unpacked either the only sort of th these movies have a kind of um you know a jillian anderson psychologist figure that's like ah oh, here's what he's doing he's you know his mother was doing this to him and that's why he's doing this to the women you know it's the sort of spock monologue that explains how this all fits together. And this movie doesn't have that except in the movie within the movie. Yeah. So there's a sort of a Mulder and Scully in the show that she's on. Right. And that actress has those things. And I think it's sort of supposed to serve, except the killer in the show isn't doing what the killer in real life is doing. Mm -hmm. But I actually think it's better for that. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's better as a, I mean, I guess you call it's not really a horror movie. It's a thriller. Right. Um, but I think it's more thrilling for, you know, life doesn't, you don't get these neatly tied off in a bow explanations of stuff. Like people do crazy stuff and I'm, we may have never murders that are never, and he's dead now. So we'll never get him to explain it. And yeah, and you I don't know, theory, but that doesn't necessarily feel right in some way. You know what I mean? So just don't bother with that. Yeah. Because you get into, okay, the guy attacked her and then she runs away and then Rumi knew that he was there and she goes and disposes of the body. You know, it gets, right. you know, right. It's, uh, but yeah. It sticks it's, with here's what happened and it doesn't get into why any of it happens. And here's what happened gets a little muddied by the fact that sometimes the lens is through the central character's mindset which is mm -hmm. for at least the, the whole second act of the film and into the third is is confused so like in black swan 
we don't know what is real because we are viewing it through the lens of this central ingenue that we know is coming unhinged. Yeah, she's an unreliable narrator. That really, really made me think of Black Swan. And I know it's yeah. been done to certain degrees in other movies, but to me, that was, I mean, that was Black Swan. Yeah, but Black Swan's about ballet. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's yeah. the same movie, really. It's very, very similar, for sure. There isn't really an antagonist in Black Swan. You know, there isn't a psycho. It's not a thriller in the same way. It's more of a horror movie because it's about... And the horror is, well, is she turning into a swan or is she losing her mind? Mm -hmm. Or is it both? Or I don't know. I guess maybe we don't ever get the answer quite to that. But there isn't there isn't a stalker and there isn't a murderer. And those things are very solid thriller elements. Right. That do exist in this movie, in addition to the other stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And another thing about this is, you know, for and again, uh, and I'm not an anime expert, but um, for people who aren't into animation at all, you know, there are some some points in this where there's general emotion, genuine emotion in this. Like, for example, when they are shooting the rape scene for the TV show uh, and, you know, everybody's just there watching and her managers are there watching and Rumi starts to cry and has to, you know, she eventually has to to leave the room and that was just really effective the way that was presented i thought in the film you know yeah it was great and there's a moment in which the actor who is raping her they're like cut hold and everybody stops i mean it really does an effective job of illustrating that this is a film set and these are professionals and they're all acting but it's still incredibly intense, you know, and mm -hmm. it, so they're in hold and he's on top of her and he whispers to her. He says, I'm so sorry. You know, yeah. she, no, no, it's I'm, it's I'm good. I'm good. good. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then they finish the scene and. She's she becomes in the course of it genuinely upset. We know as the audience, but, you know, for the film crew, it was just like, Wow fantastic you know great great acting you know so they they got the scene that they wanted but then there's nobody there to sort of you know nowadays on sets you have intimacy it's like a fight choreography of intimacy coordinators that choreograph mm -hmm. it and everybody's checking in with everybody to avoid this sort of like yeah it's it's acting, but it's incredibly intimate. It can be very triggering, especially if it's not, especially if it's, you know, I mean, rape is an act of violence more than mm -hmm. anything else. It's an act of sexual violence, but it's an act of violence. Um, and I think nowadays there's more awareness of that even than in 1997. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know what the deal is in Japan, but yeah, that's, that's a tough scene to watch. I mean, it's... Um, yeah, you know, it's it's in animated form is, a you know, it's about as disturbing as a scene like that would be in a live action film. Yeah. So that's in her agents and other people are like, are you sure you want to do this? Like even the people reading the script, they were like, 
wow, dude, <laughs> you know, you're going to put this scene in here. Like this is really intense. Mm-hmm. And they're not necessarily worried so much about Mima per se. They're just like, this is really dark. Like, are we sure we want to go here? Yeah. And then the studio heads are like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be amazing. You know, ratings are going to go through the roof. I mean, it doesn't spend a lot of time on it to make it. Nobody's painted as evil in this movie. No. Nobody, nobody is painted as evil. Even the killers aren't painted as evil. They're painted as insane. Right. Who would do such, who would, who would do such a horrible thing? People who are deranged and insane. The rapists are shot as, a mob revved mm-hmm. up to a bloodlust, not as cruel and, you know, evil monsters. They are mindless monsters. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really interesting that it's like everybody in this film is pretty mild mannered in, in less circumstances have driven them insane. In which- <laughs> yeah. In which case they do horrible things, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, again, <laughs> I'm not writing a thesis on this, but that would be interesting to unpack in a class or something to be like, what is this? What's the vision of society in this film? You know? And and the thing that's very impressive about this is this director, this was his first movie. And it's, I mean, it's it's amazing that this you know, was kind of a flop and, and didn't, you know, it was, I don't think it was really appreciated until a few years later. I don't, I can't, I don't get, I can't get my head around it because I, you know, I didn't have any awareness of it uh, at the time. Maybe it was just ahead of its time. Maybe it wasn't, maybe it was marketed so that people, you know, came to, they had had different expectations than what they saw on, you know, and they were like, what the heck is this? You know, where's the robot or what? I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. But a I, lot of times, do know what the, things oh, that are ahead. sleeper hits, either they were either ahead of their time and, or um, there were expectations raised about the film that an audience buying a ticket that weren't met. And so people were like, well, right. not what I thought it was going to be. And then that equates to a kind of like, Hey, how was that moving? Well, I don't know. You know, and then there's no momentum. And, and even though this didn't do well, one of the things that has always been interesting to me about anime and one of the reasons why I, I've always wanted to delve deeper into it is, you know, in the United States, animation is almost exclusively for children. You know, we have things like Rick and Morty and, you know, uh, anime. But not on the big screen. Not on the big screen, no. And... I mean, you the know, South Park you, movie, but that's a that's because the small screen version of it was so effective. Yeah, and you have the kind of rare things like heavy metal, you know, that are, and that wasn't even American; that was Canadian. But you know, North American animation, but that's very much a cult film. You know, that wasn't like that made a hundred million dollars in the in the theater or whatever. But it's it's interesting that with anime, that it can be any genre. You know, and they seemingly in Japan have never really made that distinction in the way that we have here that that it's like, oh, animation can be for it can be for children or it could be for adults. And, you know, you can have it can be silly things or it can be very complex, serious stories that, you know, this is as well done or better done in some cases than 
the psychological thriller live action films that we would get here. And it makes me wonder, is there, you know, is there a whole genre of uh, these types of anime films that are, because I'd like to see more, you know, because the psychological thriller is a, is a fun genre. Yes. And a popular, but, popular. Yeah. Popular. Genre. Yeah. Um, I would, I would add to that too, that sometimes in Japanese animation, you know, like the studio Ghibli stuff that is for the most part, uh, Kiki's delivery service, my neighbor Totoro, um, it's, you know, so many princess Mononoke Howl's moving castle. You could look at those and say, these are children's movies, but they're more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think that you look at Pixar has moved into more of the territory like that. Like Inside Out is a children's movie, but it has gone back to the early days of Disney where the heartache is real. Like yeah. I wept during Inside Out and so did my children. Mm -hmm. And and there's a part of me that felt like, wow, this is really intense for a kid's movies. But, you know, the opening scene of Bambi is Bambi's parent mother getting shot, you know? Sure. And Bambi... And you're just like, oh, my God, you know, and I think you go all the way back to Grimm where the witch was going to eat these kids. Mm -hmm. It's not a theoretical thing. There's the oven like they were and they push her into the oven and you're like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but it it wasn't it wasn't always like, oh, here are the minions and they're doing some silly. Oh, one of them farted and yeah, Barney, you know. Um, and I think that Pixar has started to move into to a place where it's not all death and murder, but I mean, where it's complicated, like Spirited Away is 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 a gorgeous, beautiful film that I think everybody should check out. It is scary sometimes and it it doesn't explain a lot of stuff. And, you know, there when you get into the relationship she has with her parents in that movie it's not you know they're not abusive parents but it's more complicated than it looks on the surface and that's all there and the camera doesn't shy away from it and i think princess mononoke is is not really a kid's movie it's it's mm -hmm. very much about industry and the choices we have as a human society have made in this world and like they run really deep and I don't know if you saw, if you watch Pixar stuff, but with my kids, we do watch all the Pixar stuff that comes out. Soul, great movie, really adult, like very profoundly, you know, it deals with the afterlife. And I think it uses a really light and traditionally comic Pixar touch, but that's a heartbreaking movie. I mean, it's it's absolutely heartbreaking and joyous and and hilarious and all of the other stuff but the heartbreak is real so mm -hmm. i think i think that all of that is to say that in america animation i agree with you is very much like oh that's for kids and maybe now we're like it's maybe it's not just for kids but it's still the entry point and the idea of making um an animated film you know, you have World of Warcraft or something that was a purely CGI movie. You have these outliers. They're like, well, maybe this will work. They don't do well. Yeah. You know, adults don't have the mindset that I'm like, oh, I'm going to go watch the cartoon that was made for me. 
And I think you're right. Rick and Morty in the, in the short format and in the streaming format, it actually has quite an avid, uh, quite a devoted audience. You know, Adult Swim is this whole channel where that stuff, you know. And it's generally all the, the, the thing that's a big difference is it's generally all comedic. You know, we don't it's just never going to happen here in the United States. But I I would love to see more American uh, animation, you know, serious animation that is made for adults. But it's just yeah. there's just not a market for it here. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is I think if you said, hey, would you go watch a Rick and Morty movie? I'd say, well, I don't know that I'd buy a ticket to it in the theater. I would check it out if it was streaming, but I'd rather watch three Rick and Morty episodes, which are mm. 20, 22 minutes, the standard half hour TV format. Right. Then go watch because the long form version of these things always feels wrong somehow contrived yeah. or, and i think the south park ones are maybe the exception because they're done like big lavish musicals there's something this... in your brain just you just want to see a little sitcom length tidbit of whatever shenanigans these baloney heads are getting up to with their social commentary and everything baked into it the simpsons movie wasn't bad um i don't think i saw you know it. yeah and but that's been almost 20 years ago i think that you know 15 20 years ago that it but you'd agree that it doesn't stand out in the canon. Like, no. The Simpsons is an animated short form, and they did that because they thought they could make money. There wasn't no yeah. reason. You know, you could make a King of the Hill movie, and I bet it would be pretty good. But there's yeah. no need for a king. Like, you're already, you already do that. Well, they did the uh, Bob's Burgers movie that came out over did the they? summer. Yeah, yeah. That was that. It was in theaters. And well, I think same, they did pretty well, actually. I mean, fine, yeah. but... Only because of the success of the TV show, right? Right. Yeah. There would be no Bob's Burgers movie if it wasn't a successful TV show. Right. Whereas this is a full-on standalone crime thriller animated film that I think is extremely original. And I really enjoyed, and it's Japanese language. I guess you can find it dubbed, but I watched it in subtitles. I think when I watched it originally, it was, I think I watched the dub version. Did any recognize, any recognizable voices? I mean. They commonly get it was, actors yeah. to do the voices for these things. It was a long time ago, you know, so I don't, I don't remember, but. I would be curious. I think the the dubbed Princess Mononoke is actually pretty good. It's got Billy Bob Thornton in it, and it's got Gillian Anderson in it. Hmm. Um, there's a number of A-list names in that, and that's actually pretty good, although it works great in subtitles, too. There's just something about the original actors hearing their voice. You don't even know what they're saying, yeah. reading what they're saying. But, you know, I mean, what you watch a Kurosawa movie, the fact that you have to read the subtitles... <laughs> It doesn't detract from the fact that it's, no. it's an amazing movie. Yeah. So um, anyway, um, so would you recommend this? Yeah, absolutely. And the, you know, as we've had kind of this big discussion about anime, this, I I know for sure there would be people that would look at this and they'd be like, eh, I don't want to animate it. I don't want to watch that. But this is a, a, you know, this is not a popcorn movie necessarily, but this would appeal to a pretty wide audience, I think. I think, um, so. you know, people who enjoy 
these kind of psychological thrillers. This is right up there among the best of them, you know. I agree. Uh, and um, you know, I would say don't let the uh the fact that it's animated bother you. I mean, I really enjoy animation, so um, but it's going to just feel like a movie after a few minutes, you know, just like any other movie. And don't let the uh, if you watch the subtitled version, don't let that, you know, keep detract, keep you away from this. I agree. Either. I think it's so, a yeah. terrific crime thriller. I think it's a terrific anime movie. And if you like either of those genres, you're going to like this movie. And if you like both of those genres, you're going to love this movie. Yeah. If you're, if you're into anime and you've not seen this, check it out. Yeah. You're going to, and anybody listening or watching if you know more about animation or about anime than what we do and you know of other films similar to this please let us know yeah i would like to watch that yeah I and mean, there I'm i would a... like to watch the other films by this director as well yeah i'm um, a total rookie with anime i mean we did akira and i know the ghibli stuff michelle and, yeah the, yeah, the yeah. kind of big big headliner ones i've seen but i don't I don't know. And and it's a rich, rich genre that has many different branches and goes really deep. Yeah. Like I said, I've always wanted to delve deeper into it, but I just get kind of intimidated. You know, there's a, I think we talked about it on the show before, but uh, you know, Netflix, I, I think they've kind of gotten away from that, but Netflix was making a lot of, of anime for a while. And there was a, um, there was a, series that they did called crybaby devil man crybaby um that rings a bell which is really good i think you would like it's really weird um but it and it's very very adult uh but it's it's a series that i think you would be into it's basically about their people who become demons and um it's really well done i can look into that we're moving into yeah. the season where i loosen up about demonic stuff a little bit <laughs> but it's the animation is really you know it's a little more modern animation style where you can tell there's been some computer animation kind of yeah. worked in there at least it seems to be um i don't hate that but, stuff but i do it needs to be done right or it kind of takes me out of it this is not this is so yeah, this is traditional animation yeah absolutely beautiful i think yeah. absolutely beautiful the the Color, the chroma of this one is very blue. Uh, I don't know where the title Perfect Blue comes from. I was thinking about that as well. I'm I'm not sure. Um, it's not referenced in the movie as far as I can tell. And maybe it's some um, lost in translation thing. I don't know. But... And you know, one thing that uh, with this film that, and I don't want to sound derogatory with this, but with um, not just with anime, but but even with Japanese live action films and even uh, uh, some Korean live action films, even in really serious movies, at times they seem to want to throw some slapstick humor in, Yeah, uh, which is a really weird tonal shift. And this film never does that, except the very last shot of this. So she goes to visit Rumi. She's now been institutionalized. And she goes to see, and she doesn't really visit her. She just kind of looks at her through the glass. But then she goes out to her car and it's, I think maybe she's listening to the radio and it's talking about her career, but she is now this successful 
actress and presumably doesn't have any of the mental problems anymore but like she looks in the mirror and does like a thumbs up or something like that yeah and, and it's this really corny yeah. shot that it's i guess so... they just wanted yeah. to yeah i think <laughs> they wanted what? to have like a, yeah i think they wanted to have a happy ending and at no point in the film is there ever anything else like that and it's but so you know other than that just couple of seconds there isn't any slapstick humor yeah. or goofiness or anything like that that you sometimes have that you know I, I i think as an american viewer always seems really strange yeah yeah but yeah i would overwhelmingly recommend this this is you know we talk a lot of times about um about uh you know, well, my like mad God will say like, oh, my parents couldn't watch this. They would think this is terrible. But this is something it would be really hard to get my parents to watch this. But if they watched it, I think they'd get to the end and be like, oh, that was pretty good. Yeah. You know, the you know, there is there is a it is anime in the sense that there are a handful of times when a murder is committed where it's shocking. Right. Some drives an all, which is basically a tool that looks like an ice pick, you know, into somebody's eye. Mm. And you, you go, oh, like it's really, there's that shot. And then it's like, oh, but it doesn't. Sometimes with ultra violent films, it can feel pornographic in the violence. You know, I think the Kill Bill mm -hmm. uh, movies sort of. Uh, pay homage to that where it's it's um it's a kind of a blood orgy and um and then of course there's a kind of a grindhouse you know there's lots of different things that take that sensationalize the violence in a sort of an almost sexualized or literally sexualized way this doesn't do that but it is shocking when it happens and i'd say you can count that on five hands and five hands five on, on one hand um you know, my mom kind of likes legal thrillers, but I don't think she likes the violence. And I'm not mm. sure Rachel, my wife, would like the violence either. So that, but that feels anime to me. It feels like, well, you can do that in an animated film, <laughs> and it's not. It conveys the same punch, but it's not quite the same as showing it in a live action context. So it's sort of, it's sort of an end run around. You know, like what's well, a cartoon, you know, but at the same time, it you can be more graphic in a cartoon to greater effect. This isn't explicitly or gratuitously graphic in those ways, but there 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 are a handful of times when you're just kind of like, whoa, yay, you know, and we talk about the influence that this has had on other films. And this film itself, I think, was very influenced by um, Italian giallo of the 70s. So those movies were murder mysteries and they also were, a lot of them were pretty salacious in, they were kind of standard murder mysteries. And oftentimes those films have an amateur detective, but they typically will have a lot of nudity and sex and also pretty graphic murder scenes. Holy. So. They have a kind of a B pulpy, yeah. deliberate. Yeah. Yeah. And I bet. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because it was, you know, they were just trying to get audiences. In That's and, what they were going for. <laughs> yeah. In the sixties and seventies. And that was kind of what people wanted to see uh, at that time. But 
that's something that I would like to look into because I'm almost certain that he was probably influenced by those those Italian films of the 70s because and 60s and 70s because this film f feels very much like that. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, one genre or one era influences another and then influences another, you know. So, but yeah, yeah. great movie. Yeah, I, I agree. Recommend um, Chris and Chris talk movies at gmail.com is our handle. We're on the socials. We're on YouTube. We're on your podcast app. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Like and subscribe, please. That helps us out. You know, if we miss something uh, or you know more about this movie, leave it in the comments. Let us know. Um, we're not we're certainly not experts on film or professional reviewers. And, you know, we know a fair amount about some of the stuff we watch and we don't know much at all about we're just guys who like to watch movies. Exactly. So if you're one of those people that knows a lot more about it than we do, we yeah, send us a link or, you know, explain it. We'd love to learn about this stuff. We're uh, especially on the ones we really like. Yeah. <laughs> ones we don't like maybe. not as much, but yeah. But um so for next time, I think we're going to do something kind of fun, right? Are we going to do, we're going to do from 2011, there's a film called Tucker and Dale versus Evil that kind of flips the, um, you know, kids go into the woods and meet a couple of uh, rustics, the sort of uh, deliverance motif. They're not kids in deliverance, but you get the idea. Uh, flips it on its head. And uh, I have not seen it. Have you seen it? Yeah, I saw it uh, when it originally came out. I've just but, seen yeah. the trailer, but it, it's a fun. It's it a fun. Movie. Like it's a lot of fun. Uh, looks like a comedy with uh, horror frosting mm -hmm. uh, versus, you know, some of uh, Evil Dead, where it's more of a horror movie with a lot of comic frosting. Kind of more in the vein of a Shaun of the Dead, you know, where it's. Yeah. Great movie. Why, why haven't we done any of those movies? The, we should do those movies. Sure. I love them. Well, yeah. we've already announced it. We're going to do Tucker and Dale versus evil. And who knows about the British, uh, the British uh, Shaun of the dead. Maybe we'll do that after that. I'm not sure. Um, cool. So um, yeah, uh, we're, we're at time. Uh, we're over time. Yeah. If you um, have anything else to add, I think that's it magnificent well thanks folks for listening this is a humdinger you should definitely check out this movie yes and um 100 tucker and dale versus evil for next week and chris and i will talk to you all next week baby